killing it. Um, but what I want you to be mindful of is the fact that these are real people, real situations, real circumstances, real challenges, things that we should be able to relate to. Now, obviously, we understand that the Israelites are a picture of us. We can see our spiritual walk through their journey. But what we're going to learn is their Joshua is going to be working in their lives to help them through an issue. Last week, we were in a message the Lord gave us called Centered on the Lord. That was in Joshua chapter 18, verse number 1. And in that message, what we did was we really turned to Joshua to learn some lessons about how it is that we should not only be prepared, but be preparing to be victorious in our Christian lives. This is what we were created for. And what we did was we turned to Joshua's leadership, what he had shown us in this example in Joshua 18.1. And what we saw was the fact that um, Joshua gathered the people at a place called Shiloh. Now we looked at what Shiloh means. Shiloh was specifically chosen because it is at the very dead center of all of the land that they would have. And also the word Shiloh means coming Messiah. It was refocusing them on the future. And what we learned was this. Before they were going to go into the promised land, Joshua realized that where things were, they needed to get refocused. They need to get recentered because there were some, some tribulations going on. There were some struggles taking place. It was very, very key that they regroup and center themselves around God. And what you and I learned from that is, you know what, many times before we move forward in our Christian lives, it is direly important that we refocus ourselves, that we center ourselves with our perspective. What Joshua was doing is shifting their perspective off of the short term, right? Because what happens when we get into short-term thinking, short-term thinking is about us. Short-term thinking is about our circumstances. It is all related to our immediate environment. But what he was doing was shifting them over to perspective, which is looking into the distant future, their ultimate future, right? <coughs> what you and I do when we center ourselves is we go, hey, listen, this isn't about me. It's all about him. We start thinking about the future of the coming of the Lord, and we think about the accountability we have to God. It helps us to refocus on why it is we're here and what our purpose is. Yeah. Yeah. If you get caught up in self, man, we can become easily dis disgruntled easily frustrated, easily distracted from our life making a difference in the world around us, which is why we're ultimately here. And what we do is we set our hearts on our accountability to our Savior and accountability to the reason why He's placed us here. Then He reminded us uh, of this principle that He displayed for us and the fact that He had the, the tabernacle set up in Shiloh. And the tabernacle is an amazing thing. We talked through the book of Exodus, and boy, we, we spent months on the tabernacle, and it is incredible. All the details and what it all means is just amazing when you start to see and understand it. But what we understand is, fact, first of all, for us, it is a physical manifestation of God's Spirit on the earth. This is how God was going to commune, commune with man. The word tabernacle means dwelling place. And this is where God would come and dwell with mankind. And what we saw as we broke it down was we saw this beautiful graphic representation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We saw Christ in the tabernacle. And what we realize is the fact that, guess what? Today, you and I are the physical representation of the Lord on this earth. The Bible says that we're supposed to be ambassadors. We're supposed to be a light in the darkness. We're supposed to be salt and light. Our lives are supposed to make a difference. The Spirit of God now dwells on earth, but guess what? It dwells within, within believers, the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so what we're supposed to do is we focus on how our life is represented into the world. What is our Christian life? What is our, our Christian walk? What is it displaying for the world around us? When people look at us, do they see a person of faith? Or do many times they see a person of fear? People that have a life that's like this. What happens because of our own short-sightedness, we get drawn into self. And then what happens is our testimony is affected by it. And people look at us and they go, well, what's the advantage of being, like, being a Christian? They deal with adversity just like I do. They're freaking out. But man, when you're able to stay calm, cool, and collected 
Was that like James Bond? I can't remember what it was. Whoever it was, when you're able to be like James Bond in those circumstances, man, people are like, what? You should be freaking out. You know what? God's got this. Amen. God's got this. One of my favorite, there's a t-shirt coming, I'm just telling you. There's a God's got this t-shirt coming. I've already got it designed, but I haven't quite made it yet. But what we found out is the fact that as Joshua's uh, getting things in place and he's refocusing the people, what the, they realize is the fact that, listen, if they would just do what God had told them to do, fulfill those first two, right? If they would be centered in their, in their, in their, in their, in their, in their purpose and in their, in their passion and their faith, what God would do is he would, he would pave the way for them. And that was the way that Joshua 18.1 ended. What he said, he says, the land was already subdued before them. Subdued means it's prepared for them. It's waiting on them. And so what we see is the fact that God has paved the way for their success. They're already victorious if they would just claim it. And see, for you and I, we are already victorious. Listen, there was a battle for our soul. And that battle was won on the cross of Calvary through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We are already victorious. The Bible says we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. So we have a, a purpose and a plan for God has a purpose and a plan for our lives to use us because guess what? The victory that we live speaks volumes to this broken world. Amen. And yet so many Christians live defeated lives. They live lives of fear. And they're constantly wavering in their faith. As a born-again believer, man, we should live victoriously. We should live courageously. We should live boldly for Christ. Because recognize the fact that this broken and lost world is looking at some, looking for hope somewhere. When people are in the darkness, they crave light. And the book of Philippians tells us in chapter number three that we are to be lights amongst a crooked and perverse generation, a dark, dark world. And we saw in Joshua 18:1, there was a desperate need for a recentering. God gifts them by resetting them in their opportunity to move forward. And what we'll see today is it's that level of dependence that God knew that they needed to have upon Him because the only way they could succeed was by depending upon Him, by leaning on Him, by gaining from His strength, from His direction, from, from His wisdom, right? And if we are conscious of the fact that that's true for us today, right? If the greater our dependence, the more successful we will become. The more self-sufficient we become, the less successful we will be. So what we see is this national refocusing, this recentering, where Joshua's done this. Now what we're going to see is there's going to be a shift, okay? Because recognize, God adapts many times. We've talked about an example of the GPS, right? The GPS, which is a global positioning system. But if it was a God positioning system, and we were to choose that, that, that acronym, or is that an acronym? I don't know what that means. I'm not even sure what that word means. I'm not that smart. An acronym sounds good, so y'all just work with me. Um, <laughs> but let's say it's GPS. But what if, if, if that God positioning system, what it does is the GPS does not throw us and say, listen, you know what? You made a bad choice. You chose a right-hand turn, but it was supposed to be left. And I'm done with you. Good luck. And it just shuts off and that's it. No, what does it do? It just continually recalculating, recalculating, rerouting, whatever, right? And you make another bad, stupid turn and it goes, ah, recalculating. And it's like, what are you doing? Why are you over here? Recalculating. Come on, this way. Come on. You're Man, if that weren't for GPS, I would never get anywhere. But it adapts to us, right? And this is what God does. Romans 8, 28 says, God works all things together for good for those that love God that are called according to his purpose. Meaning when you make a, a boneheaded choice, guess what? God can take that boneheaded choice, integrate it into his plan, and get you where it is he's trying to get you, right? So God is adapting. And what we're going to see here is the methodology. Joshua's going to shift the methodology of the way he's been distributing the land. There's been three, and a, three tribes or two and a half tribes that have received their inheritance so far. There are now seven tribes 
that are left. And of those seven, things are about to shift as we're going to see that Joshua is going to be diffusing discontentment in our message this morning. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of life and, Lord, the ability to, to be here today. We just pray for the Father, for those that are sick that could not be here. Uh, we think about Miss Sylvia uh, re- recovering uh, from her kidney transplant. Praise the Lord. She is home, and God, things are going well. So we just pray for your continued healing in her life. We pray for all those in Hawaii that are struggling and suffering right now, God. Would you please minister to their hearts and reveal yourself through this, through this sadness. But, Lord, we pray for this message, God. I pray that your hand would be upon it, Father, that you would guide, that you would direct. Uh, Lord, that you would take hold of the truths that you've laid upon my heart, and, God, that I would be able to relay them, uh, Lord, and get out of the way. God, I know that my humanity is the obstacle uh, that I have to deal with today. So, Lord, I'm asking you, Father, to remove the human element from this message, and, Lord, just preach to this, uh, this group, preach to my heart, Father, that we might hear your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, before I start reading, let me get a sip here. All right, Joshua chapter 18, verses 2 through 6. It says, And there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, How long are you slack to go to possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers hath given you? Give out from among you three men for each tribe, and I will send them, and they shall rise and go through the land and describe it according to the inheritance of them. And they shall come again to me, and they shall divide it into seven parts. Judah shall abide in their coasts on the south, and the house of Joseph shall abide in their coasts on the north. Ye shall therefore describe the land into seven parts, and, yeah, describe it into seven parts, and bring the description hither to me, that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. So in Joshua's statement, we can hear a little bit of frustration, right? When he's saying this part where he says, hey, you know, how long are ye slack to go possess the land? Remember, this is coming off of the discontentment, of the disobedience of the children of, the children of Joseph. We've just dealt with this where they came and said, what you've given us is not enough. It's, it's not enough. They were dissatisfied with what it was they had received in the inheritance. They were full of excuses and full of fear and unwilling, unwilling to drive out some of the Canaanites that were in their area. And so before Joshua distributes anything else, what we see is he's going to um, adjust things. Now, before he gave to Ephraim and Manasseh, there was Judah. Now, Judah received theirs, and Judah received a plenteous uh, portion of land. Now, we know in the future God had a purpose and a plan for that. Eventually, Judah and Israel, which would function as one entity, one nation, would one day split, and that division would be Judah and Benjamin. Those other ten tribes, which formed Israel, the northern kingdom, would have actually become what's called the lost tribes. They would sort of dissolve in history. But the last thing stated about Judah is interesting, because though Judah was perfectly content with what they received, they had an issue with faith. And this is how Joshua chapter 15, verse 63, ended this way for, the, for Judah. It says, As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out, but the Jebusites dwell within the children of Judah at Jerusalem unto this day. So it says, could not drive them out. What does that reveal to us about them? Now, God had promised that if they would simply do what they were told, He would drive out Everyone that they would face. Galatians 5.17, a New Testament verse, gives us an insight into the reasoning of why. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other. Notice this, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Their job was to drive out the Canaanites. And it says that they could not do it. This tells us that they were in their flesh. They were affected by their fear. They were not trusting in the Lord. 
So based upon what's gone on with the first three tribes, as things have not gone as smoothly as possible, we can certainly understand the reason for the reset. But Joshua's now going to make changes to the way things are distributed. And we'll see the reason why he does it today is how he's going to redirect them in four different things he's going to do. He's going to, first of all, identifying the disobedience. Next, he'll be assigning personal responsibility. Then he'll be, un- he'll be unwavering in his resolve. And then lastly, he's going to see reinforcing that God has the final say. So first, as we stated before, based upon the way the distribution has gone, Joshua sees a problem brewing. And so it brings us to our first point, which is this, identifying their disobedience. Two in verses two and three says this, and there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes, which had not yet received their inheritance. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, how long are you slack to go to possess the land, which the Lord God of your fathers hath given you? Notice here that Joshua is not addressing just the seven. Notice that this address is actually to all of the tribe. In verse 2 it said, And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, How long are you slack to go possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers hath given you? The issue, the issues that have arisen with, with Judah, with Ephraim and Manasseh, are simply highlighting a heart problem that seems to be percolating below the service. And he says this thing, How long are you slack to go possess the land? He's saying, What, what are you waiting on? It's kind of like this. If you came uh, to our house, and my wife, who's an amazing cook, by the way, which sadly it's starting to take its, take its impact upon me, but I'm trying to fight it with all that I can as I age. But if you come to our house and she prepares this amazing meal, right? Everything's hot. Everything's sitting out. We pray over the food, and you're just like this. My wife's going to go, hey, what are you waiting on, man? The food's ready, it's hot, it's been blessed, it's ready and prepared. What are you waiting on? And you notice what God said to them. He says, and the land was subdued before them. He's saying, hey, what are you waiting for? God's done the work. He's given you the land. The battles have been fought. The the nations have fallen. Now go and do what God's given you to do. Go take what's prepared, what's already subdued. We're seven years into this. Seven years, and what they, what they witnessed. Man, they've seen God bring victories. They've seen God do miraculous things. They've seen enemies that were much more powerful than they fall right before their feet, yeah. right? And they've seen it without losing a man. So they've seen the impossible take place. And yet, and yet, they're not willing to trust God. And we listen up and we go, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Can you believe those Israelites? I'd never be like that. Ah, right. Yeah. Okay. How many of us, <laughs> when we look back into our lives and we see how faithful God has been, how he has done the impossible. If you're a born again child today, you've already experienced a miracle of miracles. A person taken from the depths of hell on the way to destruction, redeemed by the blood and the love of Christ. But what about people that have maybe brought, had their marriages restored? maybe been drawn out of addiction, had, have experienced God's comfort through the darkest places that you've ever traveled in your life, and God was faithful yes. every Amen. step of the way. Yes. We've seen Him restore relationships and rebuild families. We've seen Him make provision for us time and time and time again. Yes. And yet, just like the Israelites, amazingly, we can look at His track record in our lives and look back and say, wow, look what God's done, and still think like this. Will he come through again? Can I really put my faith in God? This, this seems like a big deal. He's been faithful all these other times, but what if this time he's not? 
What if? What if? And what happens when we start to think this way and we entertain these kind of thoughts? The faithfulness, the, 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 the consistency, the amazing works of God. You know what they start to do? They start to become more faded in our, in our sight, in our memory. And as they get more blurry and they get more distant, what fills our view is our fear. And soon enough, if we're not careful, fear becomes the only thing we see. And there's a distant memory of how good God was. And see, it's sad, but this is the reality that we all go through. We're looking at the Israelites, and we can't judge them. Because guess what? We're just like them. They're just people. Joshua, the Hebrew rendering of the name Jesus. Joshua's there as a picture or a symbol of Christ to be a direction for them to follow, a leader. See, we're supposed to be following Christ. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. That's our goal. Keep your eyes on on the Lord. And what we see here is the fact that we struggle with issues of faith. And when we find ourselves in these places where maybe our memory, we're having a hard time. Because I can tell you, circumstances sometimes can overwhelm us. We've all been places where, you know what, darkness just comes. And you start trying to see the goodness of God, but it becomes very difficult. Has anybody ever been there before? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you look as hard as you can and you try to think back, but your heart just won't receive it. And in those moments, you know what we do? We go to God's Word. Because guess what it's full of? Testimonies of God's goodness. Indicators, truths that we can hold on to. Because understand, when I can't hold on to my memories or my experiences, I can hold on to God's Word. He's preserved it throughout time for this very purpose so that He can grip my heart and help me, strengthen me, so that I can remember who it is I am. Because the Bible's not about me. It's about Him. And the more we understand who God is, the more we understand who we are. Right. And we understand our dependence needs to be. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 through 26. Awesome, these scriptures right here. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Listen, we should be destroyed every day. But it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. Fail not. They never fail. Verse 23, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in Him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for Him, to the soul that seeketh Him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Amen. You know to quietly wait means to wait with faith. All right? To wait with faith. To quietly wait, trusting in God's timing. Trusting in God's faithfulness. That he'll do what he always says that he will do, which is fight for his children. How many of us have been through circumstances where you thought, you know what? This one, this one's just too big. This is the end of the road. It's over. And that's what our, our fear tells us. But then our faith says, no, no, no. Don't be consumed. Right. He's faithful. He's there. Though you don't feel him, he's there. Lean on him. Reach out to him. And guess what he will do? He will lift you up. He'll get you through this. And in retrospect, we can look back and we can see how God was faithful the whole way through. Yes. The reason we couldn't feel him wasn't because of him. It was because of us. He's standing right there. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. David's claiming, you know what? No matter how, how overwhelming I may be, if I just stop and wait, I feel your hands on me. I feel your strength. Amen. I'm not standing here holding me up. God, help me. Walk with me. 
Listen to what he says here in 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3. No, it was not that. Um, 3, 3. But the Lord is faithful. He shall establish you. And notice this one. Keep you from evil. Remember truths like this, keeping things like this in our hearts, leaning on the word of God. Guess what it does? It builds our faith. It allows us to walk by faith when we don't think that we can. That's why, man, when you're going through a hard time and the devil tells you, you don't need to, word the, you don't need to go to church. You don't need to read the Bible. You don't need to pray. You know what you need? You need to distract yourself. Get on your phone. Go do something. Go on an adventure. You need to get away. No. Because I can tell you, what you need more than anything is the reinforcing of God's Word. It is our spiritual food. And can I promise you that this life, this world, this experience of being on the planet, it is going to drain you. It's going to draw from you. It's going to drag you down. And if you're not continually spiritually feeding yourself, you will grow weak and eventually you will fall. Amen. Man, I'm telling you, God's given us a gift in the Word of God, and man, we need to value it. Yeah. Understanding, listen, um, keeping truths in this eye, it's, uh, we must continually remind ourselves of how faithful He's been, and also doing that through our memories, but also through holding on to the promises of God's Word. Then we'll find ourselves, like the Israelites, if we will not do that, if we will not hold on to, to our memories, and if we will not hold on to God's Word, then we will find ourselves like they do right here, which is they are frozen in fear and they're full of excuses, right? Mm-hmm. They told him, he said, look, we can't go because they have iron chariots. They have mighty soldiers. It's, it's going to be difficult. And what we find is, in fact, the children of Joseph revealed to us that there was an underlying struggle that seems to be spreading in the tribes, which is fear. And fear equates to a lack of faith. The thing that erases fear is faith. The thing that erases faith is fear. So this is where the Israelites find themselves. And, and this um, type of thinking is something that, unfortunately, many people deal with on a day-to-day basis. There are a lot of folks that struggle with the thinking of, of you know, is God going to be there for me this time? I know he has in the past. Or I know he's been there for them. And I've seen him doing miracles for them. And I don't doubt that he did it for them. But will he do it for me? And see, this kind of thinking is not based upon anything real. It's based upon a lie whispered in our ear from our enemy. And when we fall prey to it, what happens is it causes us to become ineffective, fearful, and defeated. And yet we are conquerors, right? We've already won. We have a purpose on this earth, and God's saying, hey, listen, fulfill your purpose. Understand your, your reason for being here. Joshua has learned from the distribution of the first three that the stagnation they're experiencing is fear-driven. He has thus identified their disobedience. But there was also the issue of dissatisfaction, that they did not like what, they would, what it was that they had received. So he's going to deal with that now in our second point, which is this, assigning personal responsibility, verses 4 and 5, uh, first part of 5. It says, give out from among you three men for each tribe, and I will send them, and they shall rise and go through the land and describe it according to the inheritance of them, and they shall come again to me, and they shall divide it into seven parts. Now, if we think back to the way this was originally to be distributed, what we know is the fact that God told him to distribute it. We go back to Joshua 13, verse 1. Uh, We'll look at verse 1, then we'll jump to 6 and 7. Verse 1 says this, Now Joshua was old and stricken in years, and the Lord said unto him, I just think this is interesting, because obviously Joshua knows he's old and stricken in years. When you're old, listen, nobody has to tell you. (laughs) You don't wake up in the morning and go, Am I 20? No, you wake up and you go, Oh, man, I'm not young anymore. But notice, God, though Joshua already knows it, I think this is interesting, that God just goes, hey, thou art old and stricken in years. Just so you know, Joshua, if you were curious. 
But he says here, and there remaineth yet very much land to be possessed. What he's telling us is, listen, you know what, Joshua? If there's ever been a time when you depended upon me, it's now. You're weaker than you've been in the past, and now you need to lean on me. Then he goes to a listing geographically kind of what's going on. Then he ends up kind of talking about the inhabitants that need to be driven out, and we pick up in verse 6 and 7. This is in all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon and to Misraphoth, Maim, and all the Sidonians. Them will I drive out before the children of Israel. Only divide thou, speaking to Joshua, it says, it by lot unto the Israelites for an inheritance as I have commanded thee. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance unto the nine tribes and the half tribe of Manasseh. Now that's just what Joshua started off doing. And like I said, he got through uh, two and a half tribes and he realized that there was something going on. He's noticing as he was assigning these properties. Now remember, Judah was perfectly good with what it was they received. I put your map on there just so you can see. Look at how much land Judah got. Take a look at your map. This is all of the land of Canaan. And you notice this is all Judah. They get almost half of the territory that is available. It is pretty remarkable. But what we find is the fact that they've given this land, but then there's that issue of their, of their hearts. But when it came to Ephraim, Ephraim and Manasseh, they, or what happens, Joshua then assigns them their lot. Now, when they received their lot, they said, hey, this is not enough. We're not happy with this. And to compensate themselves for what they felt was unfair, they decided to enslave the inhabitants instead of driving them out. Because listen, we're going to somehow, we're going to come out of this on the, on the positive. So what we see is Joshua's now going to shift tactics to get away from that kind of thinking. So what he does, he has those, each one of the tribes is going to give three men. Those seven tribes give three men. That's 21 spies or individuals that are going to be sent out. They're to search out the land and divide it. And after completing their scouting mission, it will be their job to then to come to consensus of how to fairly divide the land. Recognize what's happening here. Now, instead of having the right or the ability to complain about the circumstances, they're all going in there, representatives of each tribe, and they're going to agree, this is fair. You guys agree this is fair? Okay, let's chop this off. This is that section. You guys agree this is fair? It's fair? Okay, cool. And they did this all the way down. So they're to bring their list of what's fair back to Joshua, and then Joshua's going to determine by taking it, taking it to the Lord. So they'll have no one to blame but themselves. There will be no, uh, no course of action that they can take. And recognizing the fact that it's this personal accountability which is direly Direly important. Are you guys okay? I feel like I'm in a library and they just like just yelled at the kids because y'all are like (laughs) dead silent. It's like, man, oh man, y'all are making me nervous like you're going to attack me or something. Um, Good. (laughs) Fear not. There you go. Fear not. (laughs) But what happens is a lot of times when we go through adversities, right? If, 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 if God's given us the free will, so we have free will, so we get to make our own choices. And what happens with our choices, then the accountability for our choices lies upon us. We have no one else to blame. And why this happens is the fact that God recognizes the fact that, listen, you and I need to take accountability for our choices. God gives us free will for that reason. So we can't blame him. We have to look at, our, at ourselves. We looked at this Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. It's going to talk about sowing and reaping. It's talking about the results of our choices that we make. Galatians uh, chapter 6 verse 7 says this, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. This is, For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, and he that the Spirit, who soweth to the Spirit to the Spirit, shall uh, shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. So God's given us the power to choose, right? 
So if we choose poorly, it's on us. We made the decision, and then what happens is we'll suffer the unfortunate results. What we say is the Bible tells us that there's going to be corruption. Now, this may be in the physical world, in our health. It could be in our financial situation. It could be in our spiritual walk with God. It could be in our emotional state. It could be in our families. There's no telling. And so what happens is so many times people live in denial, thinking that there'll be no ramifications for my choices. No one saw it. It isn't going to matter. But what does that verse number six say, or verse seven says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. He's giving you a promise. He says, listen, uh-uh, don't think you're going to slip it over anybody, certainly not me. So what he does is he allows us to then take full responsibility for our choices. Now, why does God do that? Because listen, if our choices don't land squarely on our shoulders, then we can point to someone else and say that it's not fair, right? So recognize in order to come to know Christ as your Savior, you have to first know that you are a sinner, right? So if someone else is making my decisions, I don't have to take responsibility. Now, that does not keep people from pointing fingers and trying to blame God. Oh, this is I can't bother. No, in the end, it's us. We are, we are sinners by nature. That's who we are. Right. Doing wrong comes easy. Right. I don't have to teach my kids how to lie when they're little. Man, they got that, no problem. Right. But tell them the truth. That takes some effort, right? They're not going to naturally tell the truth. They're going to they're do the wrong thing. And so what does God do? He gave us the Old Testament law. Was it that was, so if I could just live by the law, then I could be perfect and I could go to heaven. And God says, no. That's not the way it works. The Old Testament law was given to reveal sin to you. It's so you could understand that you need a Savior. Notice what it says in Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified. Right? No one's going to get saved through the law in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The sin, right? Sin just simply means to miss the mark. Right? If you're an archer and you're shooting at the bullseye and you miss, you sin. And so what happens? But if there is no mark to shoot for... You can't miss it. So God gave a standard and said, hey, this is what I'm holding you to. And then you go, now, now measure yourself and see how you did. And you go, man, not so good. Not so good. And so on a regular basis, the law reminds us of not only maybe that we need Christ, but what God saved us from. An amazing gift that He's given us. The Bible tells us this in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. And since this is true, recognize the fact that when you break a law, no matter if it's in your home or if it's in society, there is a price to be paid. There are accompanying penalties that always follow when the law is broken. The Bible tells us in Romans 6.23 that ours is as the wages of sin is death. Now that word is the same word that you can find in Revelation 20 verse 14 when it talks about the second death. It's talking about not only a physical but a spiritual death. <laughs> Now, that's going to be for us in the short term. It would be in a place called hell. In the long term, it's going to be a place called the lake of fire. It is a place of, of torments. And God does not want us to be there. That's why Christ went to the cross. The Bible says, for God so loved the world, right? Yeah. He doesn't want us to suffer. He wants us to be in His presence. He wants to restore us. So He's given us a way out. So we recognize the fact that, listen, this if it was the end of the story, if it was the burning that we experienced it, you know what? We made our choice. We have consciously disobeyed God. We can all look back in our lives and, man, you know what? I consciously lied. I've stolen. I've cheated. I've done you name it, man. 
And if we had a laundry list of our things that we have done, man, we wouldn't want to show it to anybody. I mean, all of our deepest, darkest moments. And if we wrote them all out, you wouldn't want anybody to see that list. And yet God sees every bit of it. And he still died on the cross for us. In spite of who we were. How beautiful is that? Should we not be grateful? Can we not think back and say, wow, God's been good. Right? Well, praise the Lord, that's not the end of the story. God gives us that option for surrender, for, 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 for restoration. Romans 6.23 continues. It says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through. You see, our Redeemer, our Savior, and our Lord, He was driven by love to give us another choice, an eternal choice. It would be faith or faithlessness. And by faith, Romans 10.13 a verse for salvation, man. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, that's a word. That's a guarantee word. That's a promise word from God. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall, shall be saved. It will be done as if it's written in stone. How beautiful. And just like the remaining tribes, God's given us personal responsibility in determining our destiny. We have a choice to make. We choose Him or we choose ourselves. One of us will pay the price. We can pay the debt for our sins in a lake of fire or God can do it for us on the cross and set us free. Not only when it comes to salvation, but also sanctification because they're two separate things. Listen, if you're born again today, that was solely 100% the responsibility of God. You simply received His gift. But then there's sanctification. And the thing is, if you get confused between these two and you think they're somehow combined, you'll think you can lose your salvation. That's not the case. God gained your salvation through His death, burial, and resurrection. He paid the price. He did the work. It's all on Him. We receive it by faith. Only by grace He offers it to us. We receive it by faith and faith alone, not works. But then you have your life over here. This is your sanctification, how you're going to live for the Lord. He'll judge you based upon this. When we stand in the judgment seat of Christ, man, that's what we're going to judge us on. For those things done in the body, both good and bad. Right? So listen, now here's this. Am I going to live for the Lord? Am I going to walk by faith? Right? That's the part that's up to us. So God's drawing us. Will we be sanctified unto Him? So Joshua displays for us this very thing. When it comes to the things that He's already done, next we're going to see that He does not waver. So recognize He's already given out the, the distribution to the two and a half tribes. So he's being, verse number, number three says, being unwavering in his resolve. Verse five says this, Judah shall abide in their coasts on the south. No changes for you guys. And the house of Joseph shall abide in their coasts on the north. No changes for you guys. Joshua, listen, he's followed the instructions for the distribution. He did what God told him to do in regards to the children of Judah and the, the children of Joseph. And what we see here is Judah uh, was content, yes, but they had an issue with faith. Ephraim and Manasseh were discontent. They were disgruntled. Uh, they were unthankful. And so my assumption is this, that perhaps what God's doing and allowing that to take place is the fact that He is literally um, humbling these two maybe entitled tribes by allowing this circumstance and having Him watch how they're going to change it up, but also the fact that He's using it as an opportunity to open the eyes of the people, refocusing those individuals, but also refocusing the group as, as a whole. So now the first three have been dealt with, and we see that that distribution has changed. And what happens is in standing His ground, in regards to not saying, well, okay, guys, you, okay, I know you weren't happy with what you have. Why don't you guys pick three as well? Bring them on. We'll just go out and we'll do this whole thing over. No. You stay where you're going to stay. I've already done that. That's done. Right? I've told you, this is what God led me to do, and I ain't going to change. 
and by, it's not good English, I apologize, I'm not going to change. But Joshua is reaffirming his leadership, right? What he's telling them is, listen, you don't have the influence to change my mind, but God does. I answer to one and only one. It is God's spirit that's leading and guiding and directing me. So Joshua has learned, he has learned that listening to the wisdom of men and trying to fulfill their fleshly desires of what makes them happy, you know what it does? Leads to destruction. He learned it at AI. He's learned it several times. And we recognize the fact that, listen, this, this is something that if we can just get a hold of in our personal lives and recognize the fact that, listen, if we listen to the wisdom of men, it will take us into a destructive path. I don't care how wise it seems. If it is not biblically grounded, it will not work. It will not work. The, the, you know, there are TikTok philosophers galore that sound like they have all the answers in the world. You could go on Instagram, and man, you could find somebody that sounds so smart. And they are talking out of their whatever it is. <laughs> They're idiots. They think they have all this knowledge. But the problem is, unless they take a biblical principle that we were created to work within, it doesn't matter how much sense it makes to us, our logical human mind, because it will not work. And when we try to live outside of the boundaries that God established for us, man, we live with the destructive results. So to the flesh, reap corruption. So to the spirit, reap life everlasting. So we recognize the fact that this Joshua's uh, only, uh, God's the only one that influences Joshua. Now, how about us? Is he the one that we allow to be the final say in our life? Is he the one that is the influence that changes our minds? Or do we go have conversations or go to people that counsel us and they give us advice. And they go, wow, did it work for you? Oh, yeah, it worked great. Yeah. Not really biblical, but it's worth a try. We allow people to whisper in our ears. And you understand, the devil doesn't want to get you all the way over here, like at a pagan uh, worship center. No. <laughs> He's not trying to get you over in a deep, deep heresy. He just wants to get you off course a little bit. Yeah. Because if you're off course a little bit here down the road, you're way off course. And that's the whole goal. That's why all the distractions of the world that are going on around us right now, if we'll just give them our eye and give them our heart, what they will do, they'll draw us away from our truth, the truth of God's word. This has to be the foundation of the choices that we make in life. James says this in chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. It says, This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying, envying and strife is, boy, envy, hello, is that not a part of the internet? Uh, going on Facebook and all that stuff? Strife. We see strife in our world like never before. Confusion. People don't even know what they are anymore. And every evil work. Verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure. Notice that. Then peaceable. It's gentle. Easy to be entreated. It's full of mercy and good fruits. Without partiality. It doesn't pick and choose. Without hypocrisy. It's consistent. Verse 18, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. See, Joshua is using godly wisdom and insight to bring peace into a situation that is heading towards chaos. He knows and sees what's taking place. So not only has he shut down the spirit of discontentment, but he's eliminating the environment where it could spread into others. Joshua is wise because he's following God. God adapts to our stupidity. And you know what? Joshua's adapting to their stupidity as we speak. Scripture teaches us in Ephesians 4.27, neither give place to the devil. Simple, short, little verse. 
But can I tell you, boy, that thing, it is absolutely true in our lives, in our, in our, in our relationships, in our careers, in our homes. Do not give place to the devil. Do not leave an open door because I can promise you, he will take it. He's looking for a crack in your relationship, in your marriage. He's looking for a crack in your own standards, your own willingness to trust and follow God. Because I'm telling you, not only is it true in relationships, but boy, it's true in your heart. Don't give place to the devil. Don't set your heart and affection on things, above, on things on the earth, but set them on things above. God continually reminds us and says, there's danger in this earth. Don't fall in love with it because it will be your end. And we live in a culture right now that's in love with the things of the world. Doing all they can to consume it. Oh, travel, electronics, clothing. Oh, it's all about excess, excess, excess. And the more people consume, the more empty they become. The more desperate they become. And God says, listen, simple truths. Come to me. You'll feel what you find. It's peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Fruits of righteousness sown in peace of them that make peace. And the one thing that this world does not have is peace. That's right. Amen. Think of the hearts of young people right now. Right. The very thing they seek more than anything else. I just want peace. I've searched the internet for every answer I can possibly find. And I'm full of more questions than I started. But I know it can't be God. Because they told me it can't. They sound smart. You know what the Bible tells us? That in that final day, when everyone stands before God, it says the mighty men will weep. They will curl up in a ball and cry like a baby. The Bill Gates of the world who think they have control over everything will stand before the mighty God and he'll look at them with love in his eyes. Say, I I called your heart. Time and again, I called your heart, but your eyes, you denied me. You pushed me away. You're not in this situation because I put you there. You made a choice. Every day, people make a choice. And so it's direly important that we live our faith and that our faith is displayed to people around us so they can see Christ and see the hope that's in Him. Because this world has no hope. Will we stand our ground and allow God to be our our only influence or will this ungrateful, dissatisfied generation lure us into thinking like they do. Neither give place to the devil. And then following along the same reasoning, Joshua now deals with the last point, reinforcing that God is the final say in verse number in chapter or chapter verse number six. It says, Ye shall therefore describe the land into seven parts and bring the description hither to me, that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. So the twenty-one are to return back to Shiloh. Here they are to come back after their journey. They will deliver their assessment of the land and recommend divisions for the seven tribes. Then Joshua will take these seven parcels of land and the seven tribes, and he's going to cast lots to determine where they go and who gets what. Now, this is similar to what we consider throwing dice, casting dice. This removes the responsibility off of Joshua and places it onto the Lord. God's will be done. There's no favoritism. There's no one to complain to. God has a final say. Now, I am not recommending that you go buy a pair of dice and you go, you know, okay, should I marry her? Oh, no. 
sorry, <laughs> right? Should I take the job? No, that's, listen, they did not have what we have, okay? Back then, they did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. They did not have the canon of Scripture that they could turn to to understand and determine what God's will was. So without that, what happened? God put mechanisms in place to help them in regards to recognizing what His will was. And so what happens for us today is we have the opportunity to go to His Word. As I said, the Old Testament, the believers, they did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so what happens is now the influences that you and I have in our life are the Spirit of God and the Word of God. If we'll turn to them, man, they will give us clear indicators of exactly what's right. Yeah. Right? I can go to God's Word and I can tell you if I'm living wrong in my life, this thing will show me. Yeah. Right. right? It's like a mirror, right? Yeah. It's like a mirror. It reflects back what is wrong. And we go there, boy, you can read Scripture or come to church and get under conviction and be like, golly, dude, i got to change that. Mm. Couldn't they talk about something else? Why is he always preaching to me? Amen. Hello? <laughs> Happened to me tons of times, right? But the question is this. Do we make it our final word? Does this Bible, does God have the final say in our lives? Mm-hmm. The problem is so many times we listen and we go, yes. It's like, you know, we heard about that, 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 that song with the second song, and it was talking about standing on the Lord, and man, just, man, he has the final say. Man, that sounds so good. It's easy to sing. But when it comes down to it, There are things in our lives sometimes where, God, we know it's wrong. We know it's wrong. Mm -hmm. We have no doubt about it. God's convicted us. And see, there's this old phrase that people say. It's like, you know, hey, look, God says it. That settles it. Sounds awesome. Mm -hmm. But what will happen is people will go and try to negotiate with with our Joshua. Lord, I know. (laughs) Uh, I know this is wrong. (laughs) You know, we both know. We got it. Right. Um, but if, uh, if I were to do a lot of really good stuff over here, I mean, I really got faithful in some areas where I'm really not so faithful, but if I really did, could I just hang on to that one? Would that, could, would that be okay? Has anybody been there? Yes. Yeah. We try to justify little things in our lives that we think are okay, and they're not. We know they're wrong, but we're not allowing God to have the final say. We're saying... I want to negotiate right. and see if I can't change your mind. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Forever, man. He's never going to change. Joshua knows that God has the final say. And what he's trying to do is try to have his countrymen, his countrymen recognize through this exercise that that's the case. God will have the final say. And you know what happens? Discontentment, you know what it does? It causes people to question God. Discontentment, you know what it does? It swells our pride and it empowers us to challenge God amazingly. You know what discontentment does? It encourages us to fulfill our fleshly desires in defiance of God. At some level, we've all dealt with this and we know it's true and it's rooted in discontentment. And so as Joshua sees these things swelling in the people, right, what's he trying to do? He's trying to head it off at the pass. And look, whether it's dealing with people, and we're going to take the principles we learn, and we're going to deal with our spouse or our our coworker or our children, or more importantly, our own hearts, recognize there's disobedience in us, right? These issues that we're seeing about diffusing discontentment can be our own hearts, right? 
God shows all these things in Scripture and lists all of these examples and experiences so that we can learn from their failures and learn also from their successes. So when we think about him diffusing discontentment, first of all, identifying the disobedience. What's fueling the ungodly behavior? Perhaps in the person we're dealing with or perhaps in our own hearts. Where is this coming from, this attitude that I've got? that just feeding into my discontentment. Secondly, assigning personal responsibility, right? Is, is, uh, is the offender, is the one that's involved in the, in the failure, are they a part of the resolution, right? Do they have skin in the game, right? That's the whole thing God does for us. He gets skin in the game. He allows us to be a part of our own solution because we get to trust in Christ, but then we get to be sanctified through, through our choices to live for Him, to honor Him, to love Him. And so recognize the fact that sometimes... In our own hearts, man, it's our own willingness to take accountability for our failures that allows us to come out of our messes. When we live in denial, man, we can push it off, keep pushing it off, and keep pushing it off, and keep pushing it off. But no, when you finally come to the realization and go, you know what? I'm wrong. And I recognize it. God, help me now. Right? What did David say? Search my heart, our Lord, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Right? That's his desire. He wanted to be right. So when God recognizes and shows us something, man, we need to deal with it. Then next, being unwavering in our resolve. What foundational biblical truth are we standing on? What's guiding and directing our actions? And will we waver? Will we try to alter God's word to fit what's comfortable? Or we allow it to speak? Because the last thing is this, reinforcing that God has the final say. Does he? Does he? Notice this, whatever God's word tells us to do, no matter whether we like it or not, we must determine in our hearts that we're going to do it. Because the only guaranteed way to actually diffuse discontentment is to do it God's way. If he does not have the final say in your life, you are going to continue on a path to destruction. God is working in our hearts and lives for the purpose to make us more like Him so that the light will shine brighter, so that the broken world will see Him in us, and that this world, before time runs out, because I can promise you, time is growing short. Yeah. I mean, if there's, what is it, as time and hour, what is it, what was the thing, Days of Our Lives? I used to, be, when I was a young man, I used to watch, <laughs> my mom would watch Days of Our Lives, and they always said an hour ago, what was it used to say? But it, but it used to have some little still. I can't think of it. What it was? I'm old man. It said used to say used to say this thing. It would sort of introduce the days of our lives. It would go as sand falls to the hourglass, so all the days of our lives. That was that's how they used to introduce the show. But but I'm just telling you, there's not a whole lot of grains left. Let's put it that way. There's just a few more to fall. And what happens is we get distracted by the stuff of the world, and we lose sight of why we're here. Man, God has you here to reach the world. You don't have to have all the answers. You just need to live for Christ. God's the one that will do the work. As He said, the land is subdued before you. Man, Jesus has done all the work. He went to the cross. He's made the way. He's given us the Word of God. He's put the church in place. He's saved your soul. He's given you everything you need. And He says, now just go live for me a little bit. How about if you just let your light shine? What if you just stay consistent? What if you don't allow the world to get a hold of your heart? And what if you just, listen, share the truth of my Word? Wow. And you know what I'll do? The impossible. Right. You will witness souls on their way to hell, redirected on the way to heaven. Not because you're something special, just because you showed up. 
a willing vessel, the Bible says. It doesn't ask much. The Bible says, forget it. It says, submit yourself. No. Romans 12, 1. Uh, beseech you, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto him, which is your reasonable service. And then it says, be not conformed to this world, right? right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? That's the whole goal. So today we come and renew our minds. We get refocused on what we're supposed to do. We recognize that the discontentment that's trying to develop itself in our lives, and we go, no, 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 I'm going to diffuse it. I'm going to stop this. I'm not going to allow this thing to get a hold of me, and I'm going to live for Christ. Boy, if that's, if we learn this and we take it out of here today and we change our lives, man, we not only can change our life, but change someone else's by the glory of God. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today, for the beautiful word of God. Thank you for the truths you've taught us for this wonderful group of people. And Lord, I do pray that you would take what you have taught us today and Lord, help us to not only hear it, but Lord, help us to take it to heart. Help it to change the way that we live, that we might go out and make a difference for the glory of God. Thank you for being willing to use us. Lord, you know us and you love us for who we can be, not who we are today. So Lord, thank you for seeing potential in each one of us and loving us so much. I do pray for my brothers and sisters that you guide and direct us and use our lives today for your glory. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, just... If you're here today and you said, like, I don't know necessarily where I stand with God. I can understand that. 22 years ago, I was never raised in church. I did not, wasn't raised in a church home. Uh, we didn't have a Bible. We didn't pray. But at 20, at 34 years old, someone stepped into my life and shared the truth of who God really was. Not who religion was, not church, nothing like that. But just revealed me who Christ was. Told me of his love for me. Told me of the cross told me the fact that I was a sinner and on my way to hell, not because I was worse than anybody else, but just because I was, I was human. And if you're here today and you do not, you do not know, you're not certain that you're a child of God, can I promise you this? God loves you right where you are. He wants to restore and redeem you. He died with you in mind, and he's looking for you to receive the gift of God. And as he offers it to you, all you have to do is receive it. It's like a magnet pulling on iron shavings. The iron shavings don't have to do anything except for let go of the earth. And when they let go of the earth, man, boom, the magnet does all the work. And the tension that you feel, guess what, man? When, those when that magnet touches those shavings, the tension's over. They become one. If you feel the draw of God, you feel the tension of God on your heart, he's calling you with his love. And all you have to do is receive it. And God can take away that tension and make you a child of God. If you're watching this online, you're listening to it recorded. This is not a, uh, something that requires a pastor. And there's no ceremony involved. There's no magic prayer. It's just the heart of a broken person reaching out to a loving God. And if you want to receive that gift, I'm going to lead you in prayer. It will not be the words that will save you. God's listening to your heart. And that's all that he cares about. But this prayer, this is an opportunity for you to submit yourself before him and receive him. So with their heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ, just in your heart and mind, repeat after me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I am so sorry for my sin. I know that I've missed the mark and that I've failed you. And I understand that there's a penalty for that sin. God, but you love me. I don't understand why. And I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I'm asking you right now, in the best way I know how, to come into my heart, forgive me of my sins, and to give me a home in heaven. Lord, thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks. Amen.